Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 22 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in as always. Always great to have you here. And I'm so humbled by your support of the show. I love hearing from you guys. I love getting all your messages of support and hearing that you're enjoying the show. So thank you so much for spreading the message, sharing it around, telling your friends. And it's great to see the show getting uh, more and more traction every week. I've just got back from vacation, spent some time in Seattle, Vancouver, uh, Hawaii, just relaxing and recovering. It's been a pretty crazy couple of months here. And so I needed some downtime to relax. And it was great. Spent a lot of time on the beach, a lot of time in the sun, a lot of time meditating and just, you know, getting back to getting back to normal and feeling good again. It's been a pretty anxious time, I can't lie to you guys. Uh, you know, leaving my career and going into business full time, it's uh, it has its challenges. There's a lot of unknowns and I think whenever there's unknowns, that's when a lot of anxiety flares up. But uh, it's funny, it doesn't matter how much I, I know to be true, I'm very comfortable with the decision, I'm excited about the possibilities, yet uh, at times just found myself in bed staring at the ceiling, feeling anxious about the future about having to create my own income support myself and i think it's natural but i just wanted to share that with you guys so you can you can see it's a um it's not a not a linear process there's a lot lot of ups and downs and even though a decision i feel really comfortable and confident with it's still um the odd day not every day but you know where i still feel a little bit anxious and um it's all part of the process so uh, i'll keep you updated as time goes on my last day will be july 31st so still a few months to go before i leave my job and go on to it so something to look forward to uh this week on the show i sat down with a good friend of mine mark silverman uh mark's a great guy and we just had as always a, a really deep open vulnerable conversation i'm so grateful to mark for opening up and really all the guests that bring it all to the show and really open up their personal lives for you guys to see in the hope that it will help some people to feel less lonely, feel more understood, and maybe get some insights uh, for their own lives. Mark's had a fascinating life. I learned some stuff in the show that I hadn't heard before. There's uh, a moment where Mark uh, chokes up a little bit, which was, was really special. And he just has a lot of great insights. There's a lot of gold in there. There's a lot of little gems that you'll you'll find if you're listening for them as the show goes on. So uh, as always, I start by asking Mark to tell me a little bit more about his upbringing, which was in Long Island, which he did. And so I hope you enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Mark Silverman. Let's see, I'm a, I'm a Jewish kid who grew up in Long Island, New York. And since this is an international uh, podcast, uh, it's a, Long Island is a little, little, little piece of land that sticks off of New York City. And the people who couldn't afford to live in New York City moved out to Long Island uh, for cheap housing and then commuted back and forth. So it was you know, uh, lower, lower middle class uh, neighborhood, quite mixed uh, and uh, kind of a melting pot. Grew up pretty miserable, not liking where I was, not liking who I was. Uh, moved in my senior year in high school to Connecticut uh, to an inner city school that I was not equipped to deal with where we weren't allowed to, you know, white kids weren't allowed to go to the bathroom uh, because the black kids own the, own the, own the bathroom. Wow. Uh, so it was, it was, it was uh, the year before I got in there, there were race riots and it was, you know, so it was, it was, it was rough. So I spent as little time in school as possible and as much time with drugs, alcohol and nefarious activities as I could possibly find. And what does it mean to be Jewish in New York at that time? Uh, Jewish in New York is one thing. Jewish on Long Island, where I was, was, uh, you know, I was, I was the kike. All the words you can think of, I was bagel boy. It was, it was uh, pretty rough. It was a pretty rough scene. It was not uh, a welcome. There weren't a lot of people like me. There were a few rich kids who were Jewish on the other side of town but not, not where I was living. And brothers and sisters. So I have a much older brother who was uh, much more of a fighter. So he spent his, his uh, formative years fighting his way through school. And I had a sister who was much older, who 11 years older, who got out as soon as possible and went, went to college in upstate New York. Right. Became a teacher. Cool. And so how did you end up in Connecticut? What was the, the, the move there? So both my parents lost their jobs. Uh, my sister was having a baby in Connecticut, so my parents decided to move 
closer to where my sister was. So they moved me to Connecticut. And, you know, their great regret was they didn't move to Florida when the Great Migration happened in the uh, 70s. <laughs> yeah. What was that one? What's the migration in the 70s? A lot of people, a lot of Jews, a lot of, a lot of New Yorkers were moving down to Florida. A lot of my parents' friends moved down to Florida. And they moved to Connecticut where they didn't know anybody, where the, the culture didn't quite fit them. So, you know, they just lived to work and didn't have much, much of an expansive life, where when they finally moved to Florida 15 years later, they were like, oh, these are our people. Uh, and they were so much more comfortable and they, was, they, they lived at, out of life so much happier. They ran into people that they hadn't seen for 50 years and they, they loved it down there. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So you end up in Connecticut. And so what defines that period? You say like inner city school, pretty difficult. What defines that period? Uh, trying to go to college, you know, when I, so I, I moved to my senior year of high school. So I tried to go, I uh, went, I went to, I, I didn't, I got rejected from every school I applied to. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of guidance in that. Uh, so I went to a community college and I lasted about three weeks there. I uh, went to a bar one night, uh, drinking, you know, drinking and having a good time and, uh, their coat check quit. So I jumped behind the coat check. I made a hundred bucks that night. And thought that was the coolest thing in, in 1980 to make a hundred bucks just for dancing and drinking and having a really good time. So I quit. I, well, I didn't even quit school. I just never went back. Left all my stuff, and I was at the bar every single night. Uh, finally, around Christmas time, I went and got my stuff, and it was mostly pilfered and taken. Um, and I moved into a room in in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, my whole life was uh, now they, they made me a bartender. So I bartended in two bars from uh, 10 o'clock in the morning till two o'clock in the morning. And then I went to the after bar and danced all night and then, you know, lived a life of uh, drugs, alcohol, black beauties, which were speed at that time. And uh, basically wasted every, every ounce of uh, youthful energy I possibly could muster. To me, there's like there's there's a sexiness about it, though. I had a blast. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds like a good time. Except when I was having breakdowns, crying in the middle of the street because I my my drug intake was just not quite right. Hadn't reached the balance yet. So and no any feeling of running away or hiding or using drugs to mask anything or just purely having a good time at that point. You know, I, I never even thought about that. So I was gay. I lived. You know, I was I was working in gay bars. I was hanging out with gay people, and I was completely immersed in the decadent lifestyle. A uh, few of my friends had regular jobs. Most of the guys who came in to the bar that I worked at, uh, you know, came in and then drank all night in their suits, you know, and uh, and uh, were complete drug addicts and alcoholics themselves. I don't know how they held regular jobs. Uh, so it was a it wasn't a conscious masking of anything. I had no life skills, zero. I had no. Oh, someone once described me uh, as on a scale of one to ten, I, on life scales, I was a negative two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm 20 years old and I got nothing. And we're talking like money management, relationship, communication, self-care, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like the only thing I knew how to do was get my laundry, you know, my laundry. I knew how to do laundry. And I, because I, because, you know, I always wanted clean clothes. That was the, that's, that's the only thing I can remember doing properly and showing up for work every day. I so showed up. It would have been a minus three without the laundry. Without the laundry and showing up for work, it would have been a minus seven. <laughs> I, did, I did show up for work. That was, you know, I had a work ethic. You know, from the time I was 15 years old, I worked. Yeah. Also, it's a good time. And so you mentioned being gay. When did you start to figure out your sexuality? Uh, when this girl in seventh grade uh, dumped me for an older guy. And he was talking about his sexual escapades. And uh, that was the last time I decided I was uh, truly interested in, in girls and women, even though I dated them all the way through high school. Uh, that was I remember that distinctly as a time when I was done. Right. And did you struggle with it at all? Was there any any battle with it? How was it in the Jewish community at that time with being gay? Uh, I, I had no I had no Jewish community. Right. So uh, it was for me, it was it wasn't a struggle at all. It was, uh, you know, I went straight to in high school because back then drinking age was 18 and I had a fake ID. So back then I just went to the bars. By the time, from, by the time I was 17, I was uh, every night I was in a bar and uh, and having, you know, having a blast. So there was no struggle whatsoever. I was always drunk. I was always high. And I was, you know, so, so you know, I didn't struggle till anything until I quit drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Was no struggle. No alcohol problem, an alcohol solution. 
it was totally a solution until I lived, you know, until I, we, we'll, we'll get to the point where I was homeless and uh, 130 pounds. Yeah. But in your 20s, so what, what point do you give up alcohol? So I didn't quite give up alcohol, but I don't know if you, you know, maybe some of your listeners remember Werner Earhart and Est back in the 70s that, uh, you know, I have my own opinions about it. A lot of people like it these days. Uh, I found it to be pretty destructive. But at first, it was really helpful. Some people who were involved with Est kind of plucked me and my boyfriend at the time out of the lifestyle and started looking at consciousness and started looking at, you know, um, the separation of my mind and what it was telling me. And that was that was the first tap on the shoulder that I got to wake up, uh, went through several years of that. And then that, that was the time when I decided I was no longer gay, that I was really heterosexual and had just been beaten out of me. And, you know, it was kind of the culture of the group to move in that direction. And I'm, I'm a chameleon. Uh, I'll, I'll go, you know, when I was in the gay community, I had long fingernails and dark glasses and earrings and, you know, all that. And then when I was in this, you know, these people actually did me a favor. They rehabilitated me. They showed me how to sit like a man. They showed me they just showed me the caricature of myself that I had made myself. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, they, they, uh, I didn't drink as much in that community. How old are you at that point? <sighs> I was 23 years old. Uh, I was 23 years old when I got, and then we moved, we moved, all moved into a house together and it bas- basically became a community. I'm holding up air quotes. And then we all moved to California together and, uh, it was tumultuous. I was thrown out several times. Usually when I was drinking, I would turn into a different person. Uh, but there was, it was also a cultish kind of. SD uh, vibe to the whole thing where if you weren't conforming or if you weren't uh, in the right frame of mind, you were accused of being in your ego. And then that was just that was just a mess. Uh, So I wound up uh, leaving and going back, leaving and going back several times. And finally, I left for the last time. And uh, I I was 28 years old. I just turned 27, 27 years old. Uh, in 1989, I left that community for the last time. I was actually thrown out, and I decided I was never going back. I was living in my truck. I had no money, and I, I had a Unicall. This is I love this story. I, have a, I had a Unicall 76 card, which was a gas station. All my other credit cards were maxed out. This was the only card that had anything on, so I could get gas and food at this gas station. And thank God they were all over California and all over the West. So I drove around the West quite a bit. And my brother, who was uh, basically uh, the mayor of Georgetown here in Washington, D.C., owned a bunch of restaurants and knew everybody, said, come come here and borrow some money from me. Uh, you know, and, and I came here. He sent me to AA and Narcotics Anonymous immediately. Uh, started taking me to the gym. I started running. I, you know, and then I enrolled in some classes. And that's when I finally started becoming a person. I was sober. I was going to school. I was around people who were actually doing stuff in life. And that's when when things started to click as a, as a, as a whole human being. And I started to get on the charts instead of below the charts. So this is 28, 28 years old. I was 28 years, 1989. Mm. How do you reflect on that time, like before that now? Ah, I, was, I reflect on that time. I didn't really know who I was, but I had instructions. I, went, I got up, I went to work. I went to the gym, I went to an AA meeting. And because I was so skinny, I went to the ice cream store that was next to the AA meeting and got a five scoop shake with protein powder trying to get above 150 pounds. I remember those days. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, I started, I started slowly dating women and really, really fostering my heterosexuality and that piece because I, oh, I had gotten married when I was in California and divorced pretty quickly. Uh, but I decided this was, you know, small detail. Yeah, it, it was actually a blip on the, it was, it was just part of the whole community thing and, and, and the craziness and the cultiness there. But when I got here, I knew I couldn't drink and I knew I did, you know, I was a sex addict, you know, this is the seventies when I, when I was out drinking and drugging and having sex and all kinds of stuff. And back then, AIDS was huge and, you know, it was, it was, it was a deadly combination. And I came, I came here and, you know, going through the nineties, I was clear that I wanted to be a dad, that I wanted to be a family man. So I, you know, so I, I knew that I had heterosexual feelings. I just didn't know how to, I didn't know how to be that very well, you know? So that was, I wound up getting married, having kids. I wound up graduating college, which was really 
uh, an immense. It took me it took me twelve years of school to graduate college, uh, and and uh, working my way up in different in various jobs. So a few years later, I have a wife, two awesome kids. Uh, I go from making twenty six thousand dollars a year to making two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, and um, rocking on all cylinders. I go to the gym every day. Yeah, I, I have a I have a pretty good life. So that was that. That brings you that brings you up to where Mark becomes an, a seven or an eight on the scale of doing life. But I was very rigid. I was as rigid as my laundry. And uh, I was very, you know, I, I didn't know I was ADD at the time, but I kept all my ducks in a row. And if anybody messed up my ducks, I was flipped out because I had a very regimented life in order to keep it as awesome as it was. Mm. I married a woman with severe ADD, so she kept messing my ducks that were supposed to be in a row up. And that, that was not good. Didn't realize that I was ADD and that I, that's why I couldn't handle anybody messing up my ducks. <laughs> couldn't get them back in a row. The perfect relationship. So... Interesting. So, like, you, you, do, do you consider yourself as bisexual? You've gone from this very, like, promiscuous, open gay life to kind of pulling that back a little bit and then deciding, okay, I want to date women. Are you still feeling like there's um, gay feelings or you feel like, no, it was all a mistake? I had I had attractions. I had I definitely had attractions, and I just decided those were attractions from old patterns and old behaviors and old hurts. Uh, I didn't really think of it in terms of bisexual heterosexuality. I, uh, I had a little bit of religious overtones to it that God made a man and a woman, and this is the way you're supposed to be, and these are the parts that fit together. Is it a Jewish thing? Or? Uh, Jewish Christian. You know, I, I was a, I was an ordained minister. I, I'm very, you know, I'm still very close to Christ as an entity, uh, and I'm also love my Jewish roots. I've, you know, I found a sect of Judaism that really resonates with my heart. I'm, but I, I practice Buddhism more than anything, you know. Uh, so it really any anything that resonates now. But back then I also had AA, which was really a very clear cut uh, way of being in the world, which I needed. I needed my brain to be washed and I needed I needed instructions. Uh, but but my marriage was very tumultuous. I married a woman who with deep, beautiful heart, brilliant woman, uh, but had her own heart, her own hurts. And especially in the in the sexuality department, it was it was tough. And we we fought a lot, and uh, and and our pathologies clashed to the point where I was starting to go. You know, I don't even want to be with a you know being with a woman is just and you know comedians would make jokes about what it's like where the woman leads the marriage and all this stuff. So all I ever knew was uh, how to be a womanizer. I, you know, men who were womanizers and just put women down, or men who was beaten down by women. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a womanizer and I knew that I wasn't going to be beaten down anymore, but I didn't have the gumption. You know, I, I, we, you and I both have friends who are relationship coaches and teach people how to be in the masculine and in the feminine and how to dance with that. I had none of those skills. So I just took my marbles and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, I met a guy who was like a men's health model and I told my wife, I'm done. I'm not fighting anymore. I'm gay. I've never been straight. I've never liked you. It was so hurtful. It was so hurtful. I was like, I've never been attracted to women and I, I just erased everything. <laughs> and uh and decided that this was the way I was going to go and uh, that was that was hard that was really really hard so did you ever enjoy having sex like straight sex I did I did I didn't enjoy all the work it took to have sex with a woman for me again because because I'm probably more gay than I am straight because I have resentments or had you know that that I took my marbles instead of instead of working through it you know you again you and I have these friends who learn men and women learn the dance we didn't learn the dance we just kind of fought our way through it and that 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 was not conducive to to relationship I, I i really do believe that we broke up because of things other than sexuality but sexuality was the rocket fuel that gave me the impetus to get out otherwise i think i would have suffered long suffered for years in a relationship that didn't work she needed a man who was going to stand up to her She's a powerful woman. She needed a man. Who, so did you. Right. But I was going to stay in a heterosexual relationship. I need a, I need a woman who was going to be gentle with me and draw me out. And we just weren't that. And I wasn't interested in looking for that because I didn't even know about it. All I knew was women were going, were going to hurt me uh, as they did all through high school, all through life. Um, so I, I just took my marbles and ran. And now I'll tell you, I, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this point. You know, we went, I went through hell. But to get to this point. I love my life. I love being gay. I am not interested in being bisexual, even if I have feelings 
you know, which I do. I get ar- I get around conscious, wonderful women, and I get attracted to them. But I'm not I'm not interested in having. All, oh, I I have ADD. I just need one section of the population to be attracted to, and then I need one person in a monogamous relationship, and then I'm a happy guy. If I have the whole world to go deal with them, I I, I don't do well with lots of choices. So let's go to a little. Uh, so let, I fast forward over to hell. So breaking up my marriage was really tough. As you know, as I say, at the time I was making a ton of money. I drove a sonic blue Lexus convertible through town. You know, I coached a basketball team for the kids. I was the committee chair for the Boy Scouts. I had my persona uh, put together. And, it, it, you know, we live in a really nice town, but a small, small town feel. And to, you know, and, to, and I was in high tech sales, which was like a locker room. And I didn't realize how much of it was a locker room until I had a boyfriend. And then I walked back into the locker room and went, oh, my God, these people are going to eat me alive. Uh, so, I, you know, and then I had kids who, you know, were both under 10 at the time. Actually, I think my oldest was 11 or 12 and uh, 11. And, uh, I, you know, they didn't know. So I, I kept things under wraps for a while. So, you know, but but when my marriage broke up, my ex-wife was depressed and she could barely get out of bed. And I was depressed and I my immune system just went to crap and I got sick as a dog and uh, my career started going in the toilet and it was a really hard time I was suicidal I wanted to die and my ex-wife wanted to die and the only thing that kept us both going was our shared maniacal commitment to raising our boys together so I moved around the corner and we raised our boys and I made the did you stay friends we did our best to st- we did, stayed friends I actually overcompensated you know, I bought her a brand new Highlander and I brought her a, I bought her a baby grand piano because she liked to play music and try to prop her up that way. And I paid I still paid all the bills. She stayed home. So I overcompensated quite a bit to make sure that she wasn't in fear and all that stuff. And I uh, focused on, uh, you know, kind of my, my having fun and having a good time outside of work. Actually, at that point, I wasn't really fo- I was trying to survive. I, we're, we're still at the suicidal <laughs> and mm. walking around my apartment wondering what the hell happened in my life. And I made a decision at the lowest point that I'm not going to let my kids see it end this way. I'm probably going to die soon because my health was just horrible. And uh, what what can I do? So I made the decision to uh, run the Marine Corps Marathon, which is a big marathon here in Washington, D.C. I couldn't run a mile (laughs) at that point. Uh, I decided that I was going to make a million dollars because if I was going to die, I need to leave some money for my family. And then I was going to give $60,000 to charity because I felt like I was, you know, I was just a piece of crap uh, that I needed to give back. Interesting mix. Yeah. So I, and, uh, and the truth is I did all those things. You know, when I was depressed, I, you know, I wrote a book called Only Tens. What are your tens? What are the most important things that you're focused on? Those were my things. Those are the only things I cared about. Well, you know, so I ran every single day. I, you know, and I worked and I had uh, my career skyrocketed and I made a ton of money and uh and uh, I was able to give the money to charity and I was able to show my kids how to how to how to dip down to the dregs and come out the other side the cool thing that happened while I was running was I was listening to Brian Johnson's philosopher's notes he had first started doing the philosopher's notes back then and I started listening to those while I was running and then I would buy the audiobooks of the ones that I liked and I started doing all this self-help and spiritual development and all this stuff and I just started digging 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 into this stuff which really it was the the emphasis of of a rise out of self-hatred and suicidal to okay I'm okay being here to within 3 or 4 years the epiphany of wow I love myself I was you know like I got myself on the list and then now I love myself and I'm worthwhile and I'm as precious to this earth as my children are precious to this earth. And that was, that was never a thought that ever occurred to me since I was born. That was the gift of that time is really exploring and exploring how my ex-wife and I could relate better and talk and, and then exploring relationships where people, where the person I was with treated me better. When you were suicidal, was it, um, the thought was, you know, having to leave a marriage, and you know, leave two kids. Was it about the sexuality? Was it about the money? It was about that I failed. That I went through all that I went through to get married, to have kids, to be a breadwinner. To to I, I arrived. I was the I was the man I thought I could always be. I wanted to be. I was masculine. I was a leader. I you know I had a wonderful family. Uh, I had a sports car for God's sakes. Um, 
and I love my boys more than anything. I love being a dad. And, you know, I was going to the Mankind Project and I was really relishing in my masculinity and being a man and a leader. And then I real then it all went to shit. <laughs> like everything I everything I worked for, I was no longer. And I had to rebuild because again, when I decided to be gay, I thought that was gonna take me all the way back to my earrings and my long fingernails, you know. And, That's and, what you knew being gay to be. Right. And, uh, and I really like being a man and all that it entails. So uh, I was terrified of that. It seems to me like there's this two sides of you. There's this one side of you that desperately wanted to be married, have kids, be a strong family man. But, and you were happy in that life to a point. But yet there was this inauthenticity to it. I can't, I can't, I can't cop to that. Uh, I don't know that it was inauthentic to be married with kids to a woman. I know that it was unsustainable with other things unaddressed and with, you know, my partners, uh, my wife's unaddressed issues that, that any chance that that might've had. Cause again, I, uh, so if we're going to, we're going to label it bisexual, I love this woman and I love my family. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to call it inauthentic, uh, because I did love it and it was unsustainable. Maybe still hiding something from myself, but I don't. I don't think so. I still, uh, and I, I still, I still love my ex-wife deeply. Care about her well-being. I still take care of her. Uh, I would die for her. I would die for my kids. And uh, I love my partner. So I'm now. You know, I've been in a relationship now for the last four years. Right around the corner, my kids know my partner, and I have the best of all worlds. I'm a family. You know, I have. A, I have a big, beautiful, modern family. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, uh, and I get to love a lot of people. So I'm very grateful. And I'm, I'm out in the community that I'm in. It's a small town. I'm out in business. And I've been embraced 100% by everybody in my life. So I, I get to be all of it now. I get to be a strong man. I get to be a gay man. I get to be a father. You know, I get to be a great ex-husband. I get to be a son. I, you know, I just, I, I love the position that this windy road has left me in. You mentioned being a strong son. So how's your relationship with your parents? Well, my dad's dead. Uh, and uh, my my relationship with my parents are my mother's still alive. Uh, and she'll probably listen to this. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's strained. Uh, you know, I moved her from Florida. She wasn't, she was, she was deathly ill in Florida after my dad died. So we moved her up here to assisted living and she hates it. She hates every minute of her life here in assisted living. And I don't blame her. You know, her dog died. She doesn't have her dog. Uh, I'm busy. My kids are, you know, off to college and stuff. So she's just, you know, she's here. She's not with her community. She's back. She's back with, um, you know, she's a she's a New York Jewish woman, and uh, she's in an assisted living with a bunch of Southern lady old old money ladies, and uh, they just got nothing to talk. You know, she's made a couple friends, but they don't blame Majan. You know, they don't, she can't, she, you know, so she can't relate. So she's kind of miserable. So that puts a lot of strain on, on the relationship. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's, an, that's an interesting dynamic. We're working on that now. We have every element in the story <laughs> so far. We have every element. I had, you know, Chris, Christmas was, uh, Christmas was my ex-wife, my two boys, my partner and my mother. Uh, so if you want to take a snapshot, that is, that is the big, beautiful, very real family I have. Yeah. I'm interested about, you know, like being depressed and being suicidal and, you know, how did you, like you said, it was for your boys, basically, you know, you wanted to come back for your boys and, and leave them money. And do you ever think what it would have been like without them if they weren't here? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if I would have had the, any semblance of a foundation or survival instinct to not drink because all bets are off when the alcohol gets poured in. You know, it's been. And so, you, did, did you you didn't go back to alcohol or drugs when never. you were depressed? I have been uh, I have been clean and sober since 1989, so that's 27. We're you know coming up on 30 years. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, so you know, would I have stayed sober? You know, would I? I don't know. I mean, I don't know when I when I came out. You know, when I turned when I was 50, uh, John and I got together. And John was like, I want, I want a monogamous relationship. I'm like, I'm 50 years old and I'm having a blast. I'm dating. I'm having a good time. My kids are good. Robin's good. And I don't want a relationship. I'm, you know, 50 years old and gay is not, is supposed to be horrible. I was having a blast. And, uh, 
so so you know everything was clicking my career my spiritual search everything was going well and i was enjoying him and he had to go and ruin it and say he wanted a relationship <laughs> that's so rude it was so rude. He was late guy. It's it so funny because he lied the first six months. He was like, no, no, I'm good. I don't want a relationship. I'm great. I, I want to date other people. And he was so full of shit. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it, you know, it took, a, it took a group of 26 people to uh, show me that I was in love with him and that it was crazy for me to lose him. So Yeah, nice. And, and how's that relationship now? So uh, John, John actually sold John, you know, John worked for the government for, you know, 30 years and has, uh, uh, you know, he walks the dog almost the same route every day. And, you know, his hobby is the weather, you know, he's just a weather geek. And uh, so craziness is not in his DNA. And he sold his house, which was a half hour from where I lived to buy a house around the corner from me so that we could date because he knew I was maniacally focused on my kids. And he bought, and what was really funny was the house he showed me was actually a house that was on my dream board that he had never seen. And so it had everything, the koi pond, it had everything that I wanted. And I was like, he's so good to my kids. And, and like I was telling people, I'm like, oh no, no, he's my, he's my best friend. Uh, he's, he's just, you know, I just love, he was just a great friend. They're like, oh, really? So how's the sex? I'm like, oh, my God, the sex is awesome. And they're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's wrong with you? Who gets that combination, right? And uh, and I was like, oh, yeah. So when I called him, I called him from Hawaii after this whole group of people were like, you're totally in love with the guy. Uh, you know, I was at my coach training, and they were like, you're totally in love with the guy. I called him, and I said, John, I just want you to let you know that I'm in love with you. And he goes, I know. I was just waiting for you to figure it out. And so, so, uh, we moved into the house together. I said, you know what? I'm locking this down immediately. You're meeting my entire family. So, so I brought him to a wedding and he met everybody. And then, uh, uh, I said, you you know, we're locking this down cause I know me, I have ADD. I'll let this go through my hands. And we moved in together, you know, almost four years ago and, uh, one of the better decisions of my life. Beautiful. It's an amazing story. The, um, the thing about, you know, sexuality is interesting. Like I, I don't know how you feel about it. You sort of said you call yourself bisexual but don't really dwell on the fact you, you want to live the gay life i find it interesting like when i came out as gay i i'd slept with a few girls and there's a lot of gay people that have or gay guys that have never slept with girls and there's some that have experimented but i feel like bisexuality is sort of the one of the harder ones to understand or one of the harder ones for people to comprehend because i feel like for me i'm not i don't i've never felt 100 percent gay it's like you had to put a percentage it would be like 80 percent and same as you i'll still meet a girl and you know it'll catch me off guard i'll get embarrassed and then my face will go red and i'll go fuck what's happening here this is weird like this is not how it's meant to go i'm gay i, I told the world i was gay so i find that it's it's like the label of being gay or straight is a lot more for other people to understand you than reality of what is really true true and i have to give credit to the community that you and i belong to the coaches community because a lot of the women uh and men our sexuality coaches, our relationship coaches, and, and really work in these polarities. And uh, when the sex, when the sexuality coaches, you know, who are very attractive and actualized, beautiful, wonderful women come up to you and go, I feel like it. I feel you. You're not gay. You're not completely gay. I feel you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, you're not supposed to see that. And then with the men, the strong, wonderful men, you know, the, I don't want them to think I'm attracted to them and I don't want to, you know, and, and so I put up a barrier. So I have a bigger barrier up to the men than I do to the women. And then I'm not in relationship with anybody. So this community really helped me allow myself to be a sexual being in the middle of a group of people to allow my attractions and my play with women and to allow my attractions and play with men, which are taboo unless it's undercover of night, you know? Uh, and, uh, and now if my relationships have become so much deeper on both sides of the spectrum. I can appreciate the women. I can play with the women. I can appreciate the men and play with the men and, and, and be much more fluid and free uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to this group of people that you and I have, have, uh, joined up with just, just so that I wasn't so, so I could, so I could be fully me and, and sexuality is, is, is not a label. It's, it's a, it's a, it's way of being in the world. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing to have that community. I, I didn't realize how much I didn't have that until I was around a bunch of people that were just open to you being whoever you wanted to be. 
and then you go, oh, fuck, I don't have to hide. Like, I spent so many years trying not to look gay <laughs> for whatever reason. I got to tell you a story. So my mother is here the other day, and she's sitting in my big black leather chair, and she looks around my, apart- my, my house, and she says, you know, this place is very masculine. Yeah, it kind of is. She goes, not a lot of color. She's, you can tell two guys live here. Yeah. And then there's silence for a minute. And she goes, but you guys are gay. Didn't you get the decorating gene? I'm like, thanks for the stereotype, mom. And no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, my kids love it. Then my kids are, my kids are both perfectly straight, perfectly happy with their sexuality. Really good with me and John. But they, you know, uh, they, one of my older son, he says, he says, you know, me and my friend thought about being gay. It's so much easier. You and John have dogs. You watch baseball, you know, <laughs> you know, that. So it's so easy. She says, but we're not gay, but it just seems so much easier. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, we ate dinner. We watched the baseball game last night. You know, we took the dogs for a walk. Life is good. There's definitely a lot of advantages to it, for sure. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was just reading an article by one one of the relationship coaches, and he was talking about how he waits for his woman and how he's changed the context in which he waits for his woman and all that. And I realized I'm the chick in the relationship. John is ready in 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 five and a half minutes, and it takes me twelve minutes to get ready. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, I'm the chick because <laughs> it takes me a little longer. Uh, I regret not getting any of those design genes. Like, I don't really dress particularly well. I don't have a really good eye for fashion. I, I wish a few of those stereotypes applied. Like people assume it's nice. People assume you can do those things. So you kind of get these free um, qualifications attached to you without having to do anything. But I can't mm. say that any of them apply to me. No, it's, it's, and it's interesting. So, you know, you know, my, my, my coaching practice is very masculine. Most of my clients are devout Christian men so I always run the disclaimer after they say they want to work with me and they want to send me a check. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First, they, I got to I got to share with you. I live with a man. Are you OK with that? And each one of them are like, I'm fine with that. That's that's no problem. But I always have to run the disclaimer. And it's really interesting that, I, you know, for me, I'm so grateful that and not because I, I, I discriminate against flamboyant or or this or that. And I'm grateful that I was able to retain my masculinity, retain uh, being a father to my boys and going through the world, you know, as who I am, uh, and still sleep with and be with a man that, you know, I did, wasn't sure that I would come through this process with that intact. I get to have a whole big old world. And so you, you never had any pushback. How did you end up working with primarily Christian men? That's just who, that just seems to be who shows up on, uh, on my zoom call and, you know, call me up. And, uh, I've had at least three people call me up and say, uh, the re- I'm calling you because God told me to work with you. Uh, so I'm like, I'm arguing with that. <laughs> you you got it. You got have you mainlined it from there? Um, I'm good with that. You know, you know, my coaching. My even though you know I'm a business coach, I'm a, I'm a leadership coach. It, you know, the secret sauce is a very deep spirituality, and pointing people back to whatever their spiritual connection is is a huge part of how I help people work you know, walk through business and walk through life. And it feels like that's independent of religion for you. Totally independent. I'll use, I'll use, I'll use whatever God you, you seem to attach yourself to. You mentioned polarity, you know, and polarity. Is there anything there for you in your um, gay relationship about polarity that you've learned? Oh, that I actually am willing to talk about with you on this call. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, so being in a short-term one-night stand relationship, that's pretty simple. Being in a long-term relationship is not so simple for me. Uh, and playing with the polarities um, and, and being both masculine and feminine in my relationship, uh, you know, being a, uh, aggressive and receiving in my relationship has been a tough one for me. And being in a relationship with someone who doesn't do um, much of the growth work or the, you know, the, the work that we do is pretty much just a very content ball cap wearing, you know, baseball watching guy. The ability to play and explore there is, 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 is limited to my own bravery, <laughs> you know, to where I want to push the boundaries. And so, so yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one. At four years, if 
if there if there's a challenge in my relationship, it's that. It's it's who I was when I came into the relationship. You know, so again, when I came into the relationship, I was a high powered sales guy making half a million dollars a year, wearing Hugo Boss suits and a gold watch all the time. And that's pretty attractive. Now I'm a coach. I wear prayer beads. Uh <laughs> You know, I, I, I paint and I, I talk about love and connection all the time. Uh, so I'm, I'm a lot Much softer. more feminine traits. Uh, yeah, I'm a lot softer in the, in the way I move through the world. Uh, I think I'm actually a stronger leader. I think those traits have made me a more powerful leader and, and powerful in my presentation. But they're softer traits and the money, you know, the money's not coming in like it was, but, you know, then. So I'm not uh, and I don't have the bravado that can often be attractive and I'm much more vulnerable, much more vulnerable now uh, than I was. Uh, One of the things that got me and John into a relationship is uh, early in our relationship, John looked at me and he actually he actually took me by the shoulders and said, when are you going to let me in? Without skipping a beat, I said, never. Nobody gets in here. And I'm a pretty warm guy. People think that that I'm pretty warm and vulnerable. I'm like, nobody gets in. I've been hurt too many times. I let him in right after that. And I've been vulnerable ever since. You know, the, the the power structure, the polarity of this relationship switched right there when I, when I now cared <laughs> and I was vulnerable and I could be hurt. And, uh, and I've been playing with that ever since. One of the, one of the beliefs I had was that, well, you're getting me all hoarse in a voice and everything. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I played with in, uh, in relationship was that the people who got into relationship with me saw my vulnerability as weakness. They saw my attraction to them and my love, cause I'm a very loving, nurturing, caring guy. They saw that as weakness. And in my last relationship before this with John, I actually yelled at the person I was with and I said, don't make that mistake. I'm a powerful motherfucker. And my vulnerability is actually proof of that. But that was more for me than him anyway. <laughs> yeah. And in this relationship, I'm living into that. And I don't have to I don't have to spell it out. I just have to know it for myself. The more and what I'm noticing is the more I remember that in myself and the more I remember uh my mission, my work, uh, while being nurturing and balancing that. The relationship writes itself that way. What does leading him in look like? To put it into words. Actually, it's really, you know, this, this is the way I'll put it. So I was in a group of people uh, a couple months ago, and I'm an introvert, and I label myself an introvert, and I don't like crowds. And I was sitting there with, you know, and there was like 40 people in the room, and there are 40 people that, uh, that I know really well. Uh, it was actually our, you know, our group. We were in. And I was sitting there going, oh, my God, I hate crowds. There's too many people. I wish I could just talk to one person. And I was about to tell people that I was nervous and uncomfortable in a group. And what I realized was, oh, my God, here's what's really going on. I love all of you people. I want to connect with all of you people. I want to be with all of you people. I just think, you know, one, it's overwhelming. Two, I don't want to look like a like a like an excited puppy, but I feel like an excited puppy. Uh, and uh, three, I'm a, I, you know I, I I don't want to be rejected. So that's the same thing in my relationship. I don't want to seem like an excited puppy. I don't, you know, way back in seventh grade when this young girl who I was smitten with, absolutely in love with, slammed me to the ground, told me I wasn't. She called me a prude. And uh, that she was going with this older guy because he knew, you know, like he knew his way around a girl and all this stuff. It just, you know, it's all that. It's like nobody's ever going to find out that I'm vulnerable. I don't need anybody. I've never needed anybody. When I was homeless, I didn't need anybody. I'd rather be homeless than take, you know, help. Uh, so that's the way. That's that's the way. And now I need John. You know, I could cry on uh, I could cry on this podcast. Fuck, this man uh, is essential to to who I am, and I don't like that. But you know, I'm getting all teary eyed now. Fuck, you, I hear you do this to everybody you interview. So yeah, so that that's that's how I know. I so get that. You know, like that, that was for me one of the most vulnerable things is admitting that I needed my boyfriend. 
it's like, fuck, I don't want to need anyone. Like, I, I'm good. I got this. I'm strong. But uh, sometimes I'm not strong. Sometimes I want to come and just collapse and be held and be told it's okay. And I need that. I need that to do what I want to do in the world. All right. Let me know what we can recover on this podcast and get back to being men talking about manly things. Thanks for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. It's as much out of my own curiosity for my own relationship as anything. So thanks for opening up. Let's circle back to the book. You, you briefly mentioned your first book, Only Tens. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. What does that mean, Only Tens? So only to, so my so the book was actually my exploration of you know we talked about what it what it took to be a husband to a strong woman you know I didn't know how to set boundaries I was I was I was all things to all people I said yes to my children I said yes to my ex wife I said yes to yes to my job I said yes to my mother um, and I was you know severely ADD so when I started my own business I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get things done. And my coach said to me, uh, you know, Mark, I wish I could do his British accent. Uh, what, what I notice is when you really want to do something like run the Marine Corps Marathon or make a million dollars, nothing stops you. So maybe you can follow your energies and trust that. What would happen if you did that? And I said, well, I'd be homeless and my kids would starve. But I started playing with that for the week. And what I realized was I lie to myself a lot. I say yes to things that I don't really mean or I don't have the capacity to do. So that person who says yes, I call Ernest in the book. Uh, so I don't I, I, I didn't know how to set boundaries and say no. I didn't know how to quiet down my psyche so that I could know what I really wanted to do, what really needed to be done, what really needed to be done by me. So I started the excited hearing, puppy part of you was kind of just like wanted to say yes to everything. Yeah. Like, oh, new iPad, you know, a new iPhone. Oh, look, this. Oh, this. Oh, this. Oh, wait, I really want to do, you know, learn to play the guitar. Oh, yes. So I started by slowing down. I started to see, oh, I'm only doing this because I should do it. You know, that should thing. Or I'm not doing this because fear is stopping me. And I started to slow down the process where I would say no to something immediately and then slow down and go, wait a second. I actually want to do it. It's fear. Or I'm going to go do this because I have to. And then that can slow that down and go, oh, my God, should. Uh, You know, there's a should in there. I don't have to do anything. You know, I, uh, Louis CK has a whole bit of, and he says, you don't, you don't have to pay your taxes. You can just kill yourself. Then they'll never get your taxes. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and so that was the premise of the book for me. So I wrote the book for myself and it wound up selling like over 50,000 copies and, and, uh, and people tell me that it's changed, that changed their lives. But it, you know, it's, it seems like a time management, get things done book but it's really a learn about, about your myself book. So it still sells about three, 400 copies a month, which blows my mind, which, you know, which brings me to the, to the, why I'm writing a second book called mastering midlife, because I look around me and, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 55 years old and, uh, uh, I have an elderly mother and assisted living. I have two children, one in college, one on the way to college. I have an ex-wife that I support. I have, you know, so I, I, I live in an expensive town and most of my clients, what I realized is, you know, when, when, when coaches go out in the world, the first question they have is, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? What does your heart say you want to do? And I know my clients because they basically say, fuck you, Mark, I have bills to pay. And I'm like, got it. And by the way, I like my job. I hate the stress. But I like the competitiveness of of the quarter end or I like climbing the ladder and duking it out and all that stuff. I just don't want to be eating myself alive inside. So, you know, my my people look really good on Facebook. They uh, and I I don't want to out them, but, you know, that but, you know, they got the shiny cars and they got all that. But they're fraying at the edges. You know, they they've got a mistress or they've got or they're drinking too much. Or, you know, or they're just waiting for the stress to stop and they can't figure out how to cope. Uh, those are those are those are the people that I care about. So it's, you know, mastering midlife, how to thrive when the world is asking the most of you when you're in your, you know, the, the belief that I that I come away with is that what drives us in our 20s and 30s, those things that get us to be successful in our 20s and 30s and move us through our fears and, and the shoulds and the, all that stuff, uh, the fear of failure that drives us forward. Uh, is unsustainable in our 40s and 50s as we get more introspective or as we get tired as we, you know as, as the world starts to be it's unsustainable but we still have responsibilities we still want to keep going so we've got to figure out a way to do it differently 
you know, Mike, Mike, Michael Jordan, he's an American uh, basketball star. I consider the greatest basketball player ever, ever. Uh, LeBron fans will probably go that direction. But if you watch Michael Jordan's career, he was three different players. When he was young and he could fly, there was nothing he couldn't do. He just, you know, he, he just, the ball went to the basket. Then as he get older, he had to change his game. He, had, he couldn't out, outgun people that way, so he made himself more physical and stronger and he you know fought his way to the to the basket and then when he got older even older he had to change his mental game and he had to change the way and he attacked and so he was for a really long time was at the top of his game and i apply that to people in business and in relationship and in life is we we have to adapt we have to evolve in order to keep that level of engagement and success going so i've been interviewing a lot of the people in my past life ceos and vps of sales and you know the guys who love the game who aren't going to go paint frames and sell them on the street corner uh, and working with them, uh, you know, same, same thing with your commitment to, to men who are suicidal and, and eradicating that. I, you know, these people want it life. They just don't experience it. And I, you know, I want to, I want to work with those people. And that's what this book is about is how to thrive when you're really, you know, in that vice grip. Yeah. So they, they don't want to give everything up. They don't want to give up all the good stuff. They just don't want to feel this insane internal pressure to keep it all right. together. And, 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 you know, for me, I want, I want to get to them before life gets to them. often, often a midlife crisis or, uh, something slams you down, a divorce being fired, you know, something slams you down where you have to go introspective. It's just a natural progression of life. As you as you go through kind of the innocence of uh, early life to the warrior part where you're going out with your sword and you're just conquering realms to the more introspective uh, time in life, which is in your 40s and 50s. You know, it happens to some guys in their 30s. You know, they uh, I was just talking to a guy, young, good looking, you know, guy, rodeo star um, business, but his business started going into the tank and he was about to get divorced and he was sitting there going, what do I do? And I'm 32 years old. To me, that's midlife. Now, that's the time to find yourself, find what you want to do. So that's what I'm working on now. Great. And you've talked to some amazing people eh, so far. Well, where's the book at at this point? So the book is at the interview stage. I could, I could probably sit down and write the book in three days, uh, but that's not the kind of book I want to write. Uh, I, you know, and I also, I don't want to write the Huffington Post piece, the 10 things to get you through midlife you know, and, and pithy little videos and stuff. I really want to go deep as you did with me in this podcast. Uh, really, I think only 10 sells the way it does because I bled on the page. Uh, it's my journey. It was only for me and people resonated with this. I, I, I want to bring people's stories, bring my own stories and my own experiences so that people see themselves on the pages and see that there's a different way because the two challenges for this, for me, is one, people don't want to admit that they're sprayed edges because showing weakness in the corporate world, you know, you flinch, you're screwed. So, so, so that vulnerability, getting that vulnerability outside is, is, is tough. Um, and so, and, you know, in, in AA, they said, you know, at first they had the worst drunks ever in AA. And then later on, they had to bring the bottom up to meet people before they crashed and burned and lost everything. So that's the challenge there is how do I bring that up to show people that you don't need a, a drastic life event to start being introspective and start preparing yourself for later years. And then for, for after your kids go to college, what are you going to do with yourself? What kind of, you know, golf is just not going to do it. Yeah. Golf and travel. It's not going to cut it. It's interesting. I was talking to my brother, Jason, yesterday and he was saying, you know, it's, he listens to every, every episode of the podcast. And he was saying like, you can kind of get a theme from the guests that you have on. They get, you know, to a point in their life they figure out that the corporate world is not it they find themselves and live happily ever after and i like that what you're talking about is something slightly different it's like how do we not have this big change this big crash how, how do we kind of do the work up front so that you can um you can have it all so to speak yeah i was, I was talking to i was talking to a gentleman yesterday and, uh, these interviews have been fantastic and th this man is um, pretty regimented, but he's, he's a single dad with two kids. And he talked about, you know, intentional creation, uh, intentional business, but then within a context, what people forget is when you're, when you're setting goals, you set your goal. And then in what context do you want that goal? Do you want that goal? You know, do you, do you want to make a million dollars no matter what, or do you want to make a million dollars and keep 
your health intact? Do you want to make it? And then what are you willing to give up? Are you willing, you know, are you willing to give up things you're afraid of to make that million dollars? Or are you willing to give up time with your family to get, you know, like, and, and have those decisions. And then you have a full conscious choice and rowing in that direction. I found that to be a fascinating piece of that. Yeah. I find that interesting as well, because there's a, there's, you know, different schools of thought on this is the four burner theory that says, you know, you can only have three of the burners up full, which is, you know, business or career, which is your family, which is your health, which is your friends. Uh, which one do you choose to sacrifice? Do you buy into that or do you think there's a way to have it all? Good question. I'm, I'm actually in the process of learning because I believe that you can have it all and I believe that you can have it all. So I, there's, tra- there's trade-offs for everything. Uh, I believe that you can have a fulfilled, amazing relationship, career, abundance. I believe you can have it all that way, but you can't do everything. You have to say no in order to, you know, the, uh, if you've read the book Essentialism, you know, this, this notion of, of, of multitasking is such a fallacy. And the same thing in your life. You know, you need to, you need to give up, you know, it's time. I can't, I, I can't be swimming laps in a pool and writing a blog post at the same time. I have to choose. So, so yeah, I believe you can have it all in the, in the, in the macro sense, but I, I think that it takes, you, you are going to have to choose uh, on, the, on the specifics. Yeah. It's something I go back and forth with because I listen to Gary Vaynerchuk. I'll go down like a Gary V hole occasionally and just, you know, he's just all about the work. He like, he's got daily vlogs he puts out and he's working from 7am till midnight every day and he's got kids and a family. He sees them on the weekend. Uh, but as far as he's concerned, if he wants to achieve his goals and he wants to be successful in business, it's about the grind. It's about showing up. It's about putting everything else on the side and, and going all for it. And there's something kind of sexy that really appeals to the masculine driven side of me. There's something sexy about just going all in and, you know, forgetting everything else and going all in on your business. But it doesn't sit right with me as well. I, it does, so again, it doesn't sit right with me. I and I, I love Gary Vaynerchuk. I love his message. He breaks me out of my stupor every day and and helps me break through fear. I do remember early on, I, I saw a video of him. He was on the beach, and he said, "I have an on and an off switch. When I'm on, I'm on. When I'm off, I'm off. I sit in a hammock and I drool on myself. I love that." You know, the uh, people who criticize Tim Ferriss say Tim Ferriss is so full of shit. He doesn't work four hours a week. But then if you listen to Tim Ferriss, he says, no, I don't. I work more than four hours a week. But what I'm doing doesn't feel like work. The four hours is the paperwork is this and that. So, you know, it's it's, it's that um, it's that design. I was talking to another guy who's uh, the CEO of a, of a company. And he said, you know, for him, the secret was he married a woman who had an MBA whose father was a top sales guy, you know, for IBM. And, uh, she grew up with her father only home on the weekends, you know, that kind of thing. So they run their household that way. Everybody's on board. Everybody understands the rhythm. And he believes in a, in a piece called overcompensation. So he just pour when he's there, he pours everything into his kids. He went to see his daughters play four times. So she knew he cared. So that when he was, you know, off with uh, President Obama speaking on nutrition in Australia, uh, she knew that she, he cared. That, so I thought I thought that was a be- that was a beautiful coping mechanism. Then I talked to another VP who, you know, he says, yeah, his children resent him for being uh, being away so much, and he would still choose it because that's who he is. You know, that's that he's not gonna he's not gonna change his stripes for that. There's there's something authentic about that. Uh, but we all, the, the thing is we all get to choose if we can, you know, so again, for me, my goal is to get under that. What's driving that? Is it a pathology? Is it a childhood decision you made that you're still running on that's making you do that? Or is it really part of who you are? Once, once make that determination, then by all means, go do that from an authentic place. And then you can have conversations. But if you're being driven by something unconscious, you're not going to make it. You're just going to run out of gas. It's unsustainable. Yeah. Fascinating topic. It's so interesting. Like just with the growth and entrepreneurship and lifestyle entrepreneurs and everything like this, this is a really great conversation to be having anything else that you want to share anything else in the 
Mike Silverman puzzle that's missing? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a full believer in the Tao, in the flow, and that in, in like Michael, what Michael Singer says, you know, in the, in the yes experiment, uh, you know, saying yes to life, choose life so you may live. I'm such a devout believer that life works, that there is a flow to it, no matter what it looks like. And that if we get into that river of the Tao, it will work again, no matter what it looks like. Uh, the struggle to live in an American society, to be bombarded by the cultural norms, the political conversation, the shoulds and all the and then all the things from my childhood, you know, this this um, this physicalness, the memory in my cells, uh, the humanity to fight all that. Uh, is is part of why I do what I do for a living uh, and, and what I see in the coaching profession is to help people navigate and thread that. You know, I, I, I'm close with shaman. I'm close with, with Buddhist masters. My rabbi was one of my best friends in the whole entire world. And they all have different ways of seeing behind the veil, behind the, you know, the back of the tapestry of life. Coaching to me and having these conversations is on one hand, Osho would call it rearranging the deck, rearranging the chairs on the on the deck of the ego, and it's really pointless. I disagree. You know, a lot of us come at this from a different level where we can see certain we can see a certain dimension in life. Uh, some of us can only see what's right in front of us. Uh, this person being a jerk. Other people can see a little deeper what's behind the person being a jerk or that that a chair is just matter. And then other people can see that this is all just an illusion and we're just all playing a game. I'm somewhere in that mix. And my goal is to help people navigate that. And rather than be buffeted about and then die, you know, on their deathbed, go, what the fuck was that life about? (laughs) You know, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather help find some intent and purpose and some connection to other people. So that's what I want you to know about Mark Silverman. Beautiful. I know you do that very, very well. Uh, currently, the book's called Only Tens. The new book will be out uh, hopefully soon. Where can people find you if they're interested in working with you in a coaching relationship? Uh, they can go to Mark J, the letter J, Silverman.com, and they'll find me. They can contact me in that way. Beautiful. Thanks, Mike. We'll put all your details in the show notes. And the last question, everybody loves it. Uh, it relates to the dark side, so... I feel like this is um, this is going to be a juicy answer, but do you have a dark side? And if you um, if you know your dark side, how do you embrace it? Uh, did you ever see the movie Leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue? So in the movie, Nicolas Cage is kind of suicidal and he decides to take all his money and everything and move to Las Vegas, drink, party, gamble, and die in the die in the arms of a hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> My brother and I have a pact that if life doesn't work out, that's what we're going to do. That is, that is, that is secretly who I am. If left to my, you know, my, my belief is left to my own desi- devices. I would like to go to Ibiza, <laughs> spend all my money <laughs> and, and, you know, and die with a pained smile on my face. So that, that's, uh, that's my dark side is that, uh, all of that. It's kind of hedonistic, hedonistic undertone. Is right there lurking under the surface that again, a lot of these uh, women who we have in our community who are uh, uh, sensuality coaches and all that, they see that and I'm like, stop that. Don't look in there. <laughs> you know, look, look at my polished shoes. So, yeah, that's my that's my that's my little dark side secret. They talk about embracing your dark side like that. You can pretend it's not there and it'll come up and grab you. You can go all in on it and end up in Ibiza and partying or you can find a way where you embrace it, acknowledge it, channel it and kind of uh, not let it destroy you. Are you able to do that with that kind of hedonistic uh, side of I it? I embraced it wholeheartedly, 100%, lived lived it and uh, enjoyed it and came out on the other side, uh, spit out, chewed up, but still alive. Uh, so now I use that for the juiciness of all life. So yes, I, I, I think I've alchemized that piece that I can talk about it freely tells me a lot that I, I believe I've alchemized that to the passion and juice I have for life and uh, letting people see all of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mike, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed just uh, 
having the conversation. I've enjoyed getting to know you more. And it's a, um, it's a, a complex and interesting story of your life. I appreciate you being fully open and sharing it. You, sir, are a can opener. You know how to open up a can of worms. So thank you. Yeah, there's a, a wisdom in just sitting and listening and letting people share openly. Um, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. We'll hopefully uh, have you back on again soon when the new book comes out. There you go, folks. Uh, my conversation with my good friend, Mark Silverman. I really enjoyed uh, hearing from Mark. He's had so many cool experiences, so it was great to hear him open up about all that. If you want to learn more about Mark, go to his website, markjsilverman.com. His book is called Only Tens, and you can buy that on Amazon.com right now. As always, I'd love it if you could share the show around. Give it a like on Facebook. Give it a comment. Share it. Twitter. Email me. (laughs) All the good stuff. I appreciate it all. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, and I'll be back next week with episode 23 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. 